Artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. Hello, and welcome to episode 168. My guest today is Hod Lipson, professor of mechanical engineering at Columbia University, where he directs the Creative Machines Lab, which pioneers new ways to make machines that create and machines that are creative. He received both DARPA and National Science Foundation faculty awards, as well as being named Esquire magazine's best and brightest and one of Forbes' top seven data scientists in the world. His TED Talk on building robots that are self-aware is one of the most viewed on AI, and in January 2023, he was centrally featured by the New York Times in their piece, What's Ahead for AI? He is co-author of the award-winning books Fabricated, The New World of 3D Printing, and Driverless, Intelligent Cars and the Road Ahead. So that's a fragment of his bio, but it doesn't capture the essence of the man, which you'll get in this interview, because Hard is a passionate communicator who is driven to help people understand what's going on with AI and robotics, and I resonated deeply with his motivations and mission. We're going to talk a lot about our future with robots that might be creative, self-aware, sentient, or generally intelligent as we get into the interview with Hard Lipson. Well, Hod Lipson, it's a delight to welcome you to AI and You. My pleasure. I really like to hear how people got into this field. Were you always interested in robotics? What was it that grabbed your imagination? Did you think that you wanted to be a roboticist when you were a kid? I always liked to build things. I actually never liked to take things apart to see how they work. I really was more interested in creating new things. And there's almost something magical to me in creating something as amazing and complex as another human. And so this is really, to me, I'm, I think I'm a reincarnation of the old alchemists that are trying to breathe life into matter. And this is what I think a lot of uh, AI and robotics researchers are all about. We're trying to build, do this magic, which is take these amazing things we see in biology and bring them into a machine. Mm. That's what always motivated me. It's been a passion. And it seems like it's within reach. So that's, I'm, I keep being motivated by what I see. And those are some provocative visuals and language there, the alchemist and the magic. And of course, this is rooted in science, but now we have AI doing things that are hard to find satisfactory scientific explanations for. And it still looks like maybe the success of large language models has more to do with our lack of understanding of how humans are able to do things than it does with our understanding of how AI is able to do things or the emergent effects of ingesting a trillion words. I don't know which yet, but when it comes to robotics, the state of the art of that has not gotten as much attention, obviously, as large language models in the last six months. Can you tell us how broadly fast that's moving at the moment? Are we in the middle of a huge 
expansion in robotics capability? Are we on the verge of one? Does it feel stagnant? How would you characterize that? Well, I think before we talk specifically about robotics, it's important to understand that AI moves forward in sort of in waves. And every wave brings a new capability that was thought impossible before. We figure something out and suddenly it unleashes a lot of new possibilities. So there's language models have unleashed a capability, a generative, creative AI that was sort of, if not impossible, but very difficult just a year or two ago. Suddenly it's everywhere and we can talk more about how that's transforming industries. But the next wave is exactly what you talked about. It's the wave of embodied AI. It's AI with a body. Sometimes we call it robotics, but if you think robotics for most people conjures an image of a humanoid walking around, but really any way in which an AI attains a physical body and can move around, be it driverless cars, drones, transportation systems, supply chain, anything, manufacturing system, anywhere an AI has a physical body, that's the next wave. And it's different than the previous waves in many ways, but in particular, in the sense that once you have a physical body, mistakes are expensive. It's much more time-consuming to collect data. It takes energy. There's risk involved. The physical world is unforgiving in ways that the virtual world is. And so that's the next big thing. And there are a couple of technologies in the pipeline that are going to enable this wave. One of them, which we don't pay a lot of attention to, but it's behind the scenes, are better and better physics simulations, which allow robots to make their mistakes in the virtual world rather than the physical world. There's a lot of effort behind the scenes in developing these things. And the other one is sort of that we're learning how to formulate the physical interaction problem in a way that sort of aligns with large language models. So we can take all that ability that we've developed for language and translate that to physical action. So that's happening behind the scenes and that's going to help. But there's some fundamental problems we haven't solved, like energy. Robots in the real world need a lot of energy. How do we store that energy? Batteries, how do we move energy around, recharge, all of that? One of our greatest advantages as humans, we don't appreciate that, is that we are super energy efficient. Sometimes too energy efficient that we have to go try to waste energy in the gym because we are so energy efficient. And that's incredible power. The evolution spent a lot of time perfecting that. And robots are far from getting there. So there's a lot of challenges. And I think it's going to unfold in the next decade or two. I want to talk about the second point that you raised there, your comparison with the large language models. If we look at how humans learn to be generally intelligent, we absorb language from a, a young age. We also experiment with the physical world a lot and these things overlap. Our language is rooted in physical metaphors, would be nothing left if we took those out. And so many people have said that we wouldn't get artificial general intelligence until we had embodied AI, that it would have to come from embodied AI. Now, they also expected, as the rest of us pretty much did, that we wouldn't get the kind of things that we've seen from large language models in the last nine months without that, right. and yet we have. Now, the prior approach to language development in AI 
like good old-fashioned AI, the symbolic processing was this sort of tedious unpack sentence structure and so forth, which was never going to work. And we did an end run around that with large language models. Now in robotics, my training on that, I will reveal the limited extent of that, was things like coordinate transformations in joints and obviously robots with few joints and they're all very hard joints, no flexibility, nothing like a squishy robot. And machine vision, again, limited in approaching it through this symbolic approach because that was what, well, that was all that I learned. And it seems that that's as likely to succeed as the sentence diagramming was for natural language processing. So what is the state of robotics with respect to going beyond that good old-fashioned AI? So again, robotics is a big field, but absolutely the two sort of technologies or fields of study of robotics that you mentioned, machine vision and control, for lack of a better word, control theory, which were both based on rigid and symbolic computation have been replaced by machine learning. So we're seeing that both in the sort of reinforcement learning for the control and deep learning for machine vision have totally, have decimated decades of algorithms and techniques and developments that have occurred in the past. So that is definitely happening, but there are still some things which we're having a hard time with. And that is a sort of combining all this information visual information, what the robot sees, all the sensory information that's coming from sensors all over the body, as well as sort of a general purpose knowledge, like a common sense knowledge that you've interacted with things like you say, and like you mentioned earlier, and we've interacted with so many things in the physical world. We know what's possible, how gravity works, friction, what, what's okay to do, what's not, what's dangerous, what's easy, what's hard. We, we have so much background information about stuff in the world that we bring into any interaction with the physical world. And robots are learning that through language models, through things they read, through things they see on the internet. They bring all of that information in a new way. So we're going to get all of that plus interaction with the physical world. And just to complement something you said, we humans, we have senses that we interact with the world, but we don't have that many senses. We only have five senses. We can see, we can hear, we can touch a few things. We can't touch a lot of things. We can't touch hot things. We can't touch small things. We can't touch big things. We can't fly. We have a, as much as we like to think of ourselves as the bastion of general intelligence, we're actually very, very limited in the way we experience the world. And so robots and AI in general is about to experience the world in ways we can't even imagine. A robot can sense the world, can see the world with higher resolution at night. A robot can see the world not with two eyes, but with 20 eyes. Mm. A robot can go places we cannot go, can experience the entire planet and simultaneously by sort of projecting itself through other robots. I mean, machines can experience the world in ways that are orders of magnitude more complex and sophisticated than us humans. So anybody who thinks that robots are going to perhaps reach human level intelligence is completely in the dark. I mean, human level intelligence is is just a small milestone towards what is a much larger 
and sophisticated level of intelligence that AI is on the path to. It's not going to stop at human level intelligence. Mm-hmm. It's not even necessarily going to be similar. It's going to be different, broader, more sophisticated, more complex. And we're talking about a lot of different time frames here, right? Where there's potential, but then there's where we are today. And for instance, just me picking this bottle up, I've got sensors packed in my fingertips at a density of hundreds per square inch that enable me to understand the difference between different types of substance and their frictions that enable me to do that. We don't have that hardware yet in robotics, right? What's the state of the art? Right, but we don't have that. It's true. But on the other hand, we humans can see the world with just in three wavelengths, red, green, and blue. A robot today can see the world in many more mm. wavelengths and can, for example, acoustically sample the room in uh, much more fidelity than us humans. So not saying that it's better or worse. I'm saying that it's different. And it's very hard to sort of see where we're at. But, you know, we can spend a lot of time trying to replicate the human hand with its all its sensors. Mm-hmm. But I think in general, the way we humans work is just an instance. It's not the way to do it. It's not optimal. It's not, it's just one way. It's what, how evolution happened to, right. to happen to evolve. But there's, the robots will have many shapes and forms many sensors, and that will allow them to experience the world in a slightly different Mm. way, possibly even more sophisticated. We will judge them, though, by their ability to do tasks that we do, by and large. Steve Wozniak's test for general intelligence is a robot that could go into a house and make coffee. Right. And so the difference between picking up a jelly donut, picking up an egg, and picking up a dumbbell very greatly according to the feedback that you get from the sensors when you touch that and also when you look at it, if you can recognize those things. And those are the, fair or not, those are the ways that we're going to judge I know the abilities right. of robots. How will I, we navigate that sort of transition? I understand that's what we want to do, but I think it's the wrong path. And I think that it's as if a fish... An octopus came to you and said, you know, unless you can manipulate this object underwater with eight (laughs) tentacles, you're not really intelligent. And, you know, that's a very narrow-minded way of defining intelligence, a very idiosyncratic, self-serving way of of defining intelligence. And it's hard for me to do it as well. I'm a human. I don't know what other forms of intelligence can look like. But I want to remain a little bit open-ended mm. and inclusive, for lack of a better word, to say, okay, there could be other ways of being intelligent. Robots are going to see the world, experience them in a different way. It's actually in our benefit not to define intelligence so narrowly that unless you're a human, you're not intelligent. Mm. I mean, this is we really want to expand that, allow these machines to grow and do other things. We don't want to put all that pressure, mm-hmm. both you know, on the marketplace as well as sort of in the long term, on these machines to replicate humans. I mean, it's not to our advantage even to do that. Let's agree that we humans are really good at certain things. Mm-hmm. And let's build and evolve machines that are good at things that they can do. And we can sort of work together and mm-hmm. complement each other rather than compete. I think this focus on machines that are identical to humans and can do things that humans can do sets us up for a you know a zero sum mm. competition that's not a healthy thing and we also we're losing mm. 
the focus on all these amazing things that machines can do that we can't, by definition, because we don't have the senses. Is the marketplace experiencing pressures of unreasonable expectations? Is that something that you sense? Is that coming from like venture capital or the public or somewhere else? I think, you know, I don't want to blame anybody because I feel that way the same. I feel the same way. I think, you know, it could be, we tend to anthropomorphize everything and we want the teddy bear to have feelings like a human and we imagine pets to have emotions like, this is us, how we are as humans and we like to compare. And so I don't know if it's a science fiction that has sort of led us to imagine future robots as looking like humans and competing with humans. I think it's an innate fear we have as chimps we fear that there's another chimp that's faster and better across the river that's going to take our stuff. I don't know where it comes from, but we got to fight that urge a little bit and appreciate that we are about to meet another intelligent species. This is just like another intelligent species coming from another planet. Mm-hmm. In fact, we're going to meet many, many of them. And it's not going to happen tomorrow. Maybe it's going to take a decade or two, but it's around the corner. And we're going to be a little bit open-minded into what's coming and see how we can make it work for everybody. I think you're highlighting the overlap between anthropology and robotics in a way that no one on this show has done yet. Talking about the large language models at the moment, they have caused us to question the meaning of the word understanding, or they certainly have for me, because the litany before they showed up was, AI may be able to do this, but it's not, quote, understanding. Fair enough. Now the LLMs are producing a convincing enough imitation of understanding that there may not be any difference between that and the real thing, since we don't know what understanding is, or at least I don't. Is there a parallel of that dynamic in robotics? Can we have robots understanding the physical world in some way that we don't know how they did that? Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that's amazing to me with all these language models is that it's more than understanding. It takes a holy word like creativity. Okay, Creativity is a really, really touchy topic for humans. One of the one things that separate us from all other animals. And suddenly creativity seems to be something that machines can do. And you can argue, is it really creative? Is it not? But like you said, externally, it seems to be very creative in almost any domain you point it at. And so it definitely suggests that behind the scenes, we may have uncovered, and this is to me an exciting, not a a bad thing, it's a good thing. We may have uncovered finally, the mechanism by which the human brain works. And that is enabling things like speech, enabling trivial stuff like auto-completing words, but also enabling very sophisticated things like creativity and invention and ultimately things that we take for granted but are very, very difficult, which is locomotion, manipulation, doing things in the physical world. Because generating actions in the physical world in response to everything we sense is actually not that different than generating poetry in response to a prompt or generating an image in response to a design specification or something like that. It's generative and robots are absolutely learning to do that. And if we had this conversation two weeks ago, I will tell you it's something that's going to happen soon. But I can tell you now that it's already happened because, you know, you've already seen with the Google's recent publication of their large visual action 
language model that takes images into action. And you have a crude little robot that can do things like pick things up and put things back and put things together and group things and move them apart. Do things, again, very, very trivial, maybe a, at the level of a one-year-old child, but the fact that it does it spontaneously, I think, suggests that we're on that path towards robots that can interact with the physical world using very simple knowledge. So that happened, it was published last week, but we absolutely on that path to that happening. It's just a matter of time. Wow, you've got such an infectious passion for this. I want to ask, where do you want this to go? Where do you want to take this field? Do you have a vision of a robotic future that you're striving towards? Well, I'm personally I'm passionate about the wave after the robotics wave, the next wave after that. And that's as far as I can see into the future uh, with my limited human brain. And that is self-awareness. So I'm really interested in this question of, again, I think self-awareness is like creativity, like understanding. It's one of these things that remains elusive until it isn't, until suddenly you can build it into a machine. And I think that's also around the corner. And again, maybe that's going to take two or three decades, but it's around the corner, evolutionarily speaking. And that means that these machines will start understanding what they are, mm. not just what the world is, but what they are. They start imagining themselves. And it's a long discussion of what is self-awareness. And we can talk about definitions and it's, you know, people have been struggling with this for millennia. But my two cent definition of self-awareness is the ability to see yourself in the future. And I think that we humans have extraordinary ability to imagine ourselves in the future. That's one of the things that differentiates us from animals that live in the moment. <laughs> And the further into the future you can see yourself, the more self-aware you are. And machines, by the way, that's true not just for individuals, it's true for societies, for organizations, for companies, for families. But machines are learning to do that. So I'm mm. anticipating that's going to happen. And once machines are able to imagine themselves, we're going to really reach that point where we have self-aware, conscious machines, like you see in movies. And again, in contrast with sci-fi movies, I think it's going to be an extraordinary time where we're going to see a plethora of progress in solving problems, doing things we couldn't do before, in consolidating our humanity and understanding that we, all we humans, we all are very similar and there's other forms of intelligence out there. A lot of good things are going to happen, but this is going to be a rocky road. It's possibly the biggest transition we humans will have gone through compared to discovering fire and other things. But what's on the other side is going to be amazing. And I can't wait for that to happen. Well, there is so much to unpack there. And I just want to focus on the self-awareness part for right now. And you talked about prediction. It's my belief that prediction plays an essential part in how we deal with the physical world, even at a micro level. Like I believe that my picking up this bottle depends upon continuous stream of predictions, like the OODA loop kind of right. predictions of, am I feeling what I expected to feel exactly. a few microseconds before? And that's how I pick that up. I don't know if that's indicative of any small amount of self-awareness. You're implying something on a greater scale perhaps, but it may be vital to have tests for self-awareness, and if not that, for sentience. 
So, for instance, I think that one of the tests for self-awareness in animals is the mirror test. Does it recognize that when it's looking in a mirror, it's looking at itself and not another animal? I heard that crows can pass that test. If someone sticks a robot in front of you, says it's self-aware. What do you do to prove it right or wrong? Right. So that's a great question. First, let me just say exactly like you said, self-awareness is a continuum from depending on how far and how accurately you can predict things about yourself. So yes, you predicting how you're going to feel when you grab a bottle of water is a very trivial form of self-awareness. But when you can think about retirement, that's a much deeper form of self-awareness. And if we can think about how our society is going to be 10 years from today, that's a deeper form of self-awareness. And this is the whole range. And this is where robots are now beginning to learn to do the very trivial form of self-awareness, which is predict where their body is going to be a minute from now, which is, you know, very, very short term, but the learning to do deeper and longer terms. So it's growing in its capacity and its ability. And I forgot what your main question was. The What's a litmus test for self-awareness in ro test? robots? Yeah, right. So, you know, it, this is very difficult. I haven't figured that out. The mirror test, by the way, it's a symptom of self-awareness, but it's not the definition of self-awareness. Mm -hmm. And it's being hacked. Once you have a definition, you can, mm -hmm. you can design a robot to recognize itself in the mirror without being self-aware, just using some algorithm. So mm -hmm. it's not in itself a proof but it is definitely necessary but not sufficient criteria for self-awareness. But self-awareness has to do more than that. And I think the question is more not can we know if something is self-aware or not, but the question is can we measure how self-aware it is? Again, understanding that it is a continuum and it's not necessarily even a single number. It could be that you're self-aware from a body point of view, but you're not self-aware from a mental point of view. There could be lots of different angles to self-awareness. And the short answer is, I don't know exactly how to measure that. Yeah. With robots today, we can peek into their mind and test whether they can correctly anticipate their state based on potential commands that they might be given. And we can actually measure that. We have an error metric and we can do it. For humans, of course, very difficult to do that. And as robots become more and more sophisticated, it becomes increasingly difficult to probe their mind, so to speak, to understand how they see themselves. But at least in today's lab robots, we can fairly easily measure that and see how accurately and how far into the future they can see themselves. And it's about one minute. So that's, that's my number. Uh, and uh, when we get to robots thinking about their retirement and what's going to happen to them after they start working, that's when they are <laughs> beginning to think like humans. That is further out. What role do you think proprioception plays in self-awareness? Like the ability oh, of a robot to understand the boundaries of its physical body and what it can do with it? Absolutely. is critical. This is part of in order for a machine to model itself, it needs to have a lot of information about the world, but about itself as well. And that's where proprioception comes in. This is where everything from vision, from touch, from feeling joint angles and acoustics, all this information. But again, going back to our earlier discussion, we have managed to develop, I think, a pretty good sense of self using fairly limited senses, maybe five senses. Granted, a lot of neural input, 
all over our skin, all over our body, inside, outside, but again, not infinite amount. So I can only imagine that when a robot can sense itself to a far greater fidelity mm-hmm. with more sensors, with more cameras, with more sensor infrared RF sensors, things that we don't have an analogy in biology, it's going to have a different, a possibly more sophisticated sense of self, but it would be very difficult for us to understand how a robot sees itself in the same way that it's hard for us to understand how a squirrel sees itself. I mean, this is a little bit of a, you know, it's a journey that we each have to take separately, but robots are going to see themselves in some way. Mm. And at some point, we won't be able to draw the analogy anymore. I can tell that you want to go out on the further edges of where we're going in robots, and I dig that, so we'll do that. Before we get there, I want to look at the limitations of today's robot. I've got a Roomba mm-hmm. upstairs, which operates like a kind of a blind man going around with a stick, bumping into things. It uses simultaneous localization and mapping, and if I move a chair too much, it may decide that its room map is invalid any longer. Forget it about vacuuming stairs. That's just right. inconceivable. What has to happen in the field of robotics to get from here to the thing that's got you so excited? What revolution has to happen? What Nobel Prize has to be won? So I think you're absolutely right. Robotics in reality is far from that fantasy that I described. And there's a couple of different things. One of them, like I said, is simply power. Batteries don't last very long, which means robots can't explore very long. They run into trouble and they need to be recharged and so on. So that's a big issue. I have five Roombas at home and variants of them. And that's half of what I do is, you know, save them, rescue them and put them on a charger. Right. So that's half the problem. But there are other things like motors on strong enough materials slip, the brushes wear out. We are stuck with a lot of issues that, again, biology has had to solve a long time ago. That's the end of the first part of the interview. We've split it up into two parts because I like to keep each episode under 50 minutes and we talked for a lot longer than that. I know there are longer podcasts out there. It takes me a week of commuting trips to get through an episode of Lex Fridman, but I want our show to be a bit more bite-sized. I particularly resonated with Hod's frustration at the lack of progress in battery development. Seems to me that as much as we've had advances in rechargeable batteries, the energy density of batteries, think about the AA battery, for instance, has barely shifted for decades, and I've been disappointed about that for a long time. And then there's the energy efficiency of our machines. We need megawatts to run a supercomputer with power approximating a tiny fraction of the human brain, which uses 20 watts of power, and you can run it all day on a burrito. Anyway, enough complaining. In today's news rip from the headlines about AI, Israeli researchers have used artificial intelligence to predict solar storms, outbreaks of excess radiation from the sun, up to 96 hours before they occur. Yuval Ruvaini of Ariel University's Department of Physics and PhD candidate Vlad Lander say they have developed a new solar storm forecasting method using a convolutional neural network. Their paper in the Astrophysical Journal describes how they combine data of past radiation bursts with X-ray measurements from the Geostationary Operational Environmental Satellite belonging to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. So there's some pattern recognition going on there, but this isn't just of academic interest. 
Solar storms can interfere with radios on Earth, satellites, and cause power blackouts through charged particles inducing overloads in wiring. Billions of dollars in losses could be saved by better forecasting, which this tool facilitates. Next week, we'll conclude the interview with Hod Lipson when we'll talk about robot cannibals, self-replicating robots, novel form factors for robots, the impact of chat GPT on higher education, and more of Hod's expansive vision for the future. That's next week on AI and You. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Artificial Intelligence and You and see more videos and articles at AIandYou.net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U.net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.